I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hey everyone, we've got a little bit of a roundtable today. We're going to go back to the uh, Jurassic era and uh, talk with my, my old buddy Scott and Milo from when we were in high school. <laughs> Scott, Milo, how are you guys doing? Old. Uh, very well. You might, have, you might have meant Cretaceous, I'm not sure. Well, maybe, maybe. And then we have Adam and Tom, of course. So, fellas... Um, I guess we're just kind of going to do a round table here. I know Adam and Tom have questions because we talk, we talk about our, our old days, the things we used to do. And <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, we always talk about those things too, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Adam, I'll let you kick it off. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so in the Ape Canyon incident, sliding down the pumice, was it boxers or briefs that were. <laughs> annihilated by the see, you know these are the questions that never get asked oh man well i had a, a reinforced bottom so it wasn't it wasn't too bad that's good <laughs> i had calluses on mine i want to say as long as it didn't feel that way naturally yeah <laughs> no. no no i was i was well protected what what adam nice. is referring to is the trip we made to mount st helens in november of 1976 and uh we uh, got bored. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and decided we went out. We found out that pumice is slippery, and uh, not using our brains, we were sliding down this hill numerous times and crashing into. Sort little... of like trying to walk on the moon. Yeah, right. And until we, until we get a little breezy in the backside and discover the butts of our pants were all chewed up because that's volcanic glass. Yeah, that's where Scott lost his wallet too, wasn't it? And the keys. Yeah, that was, that was, that was actually. I want to jump in, um, Scott Milo. This is Tom. I got a question about that. So, the deal is, <clears throat> Scott, you lost the keys. This was to, I think, you had a Volkswagen van at the time. Your or your dad's yeah. van. Yeah. Okay. So you guys lose the keys. You get back to the van. You're like, uh oh, we don't have the keys. You come back up. How did you find the keys? What was the uh, backstory on that? Well, I think. Simply, uh, we got we got lucky. Uh, we tried tried to retrace our steps as best we could, and we found some of the area where we had kind of like disturbed the pumice, I guess. And we went we went back up. Um, we got very lucky, found the keys, and found the wallet. And I, Ouch. I to, for me to to know for sure that there was a god. That was that was it right there. <laughs> Because because it was it was like finding a um, you know a needle in a haystack literally. Wow. Well, that was the that was the part that I found intriguing. It, it's it's a needle in the haystack, and it's almost as if, or maybe it is as if, <clears throat> they had been intentionally placed there 
where you would find them. And I understand there's some footprints as well involved in this. We I think that's what, what set us down the pumice in the first place, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah, I remember. We remember when we went back, and it was I think like about a fifteen minute walk from the van to out where we yeah. were screwing around, and we're like, ah, oh, crap. You know, how are we going to find? Because that stuff, we were like knee deep in the stuff sometimes, and those keys and the wallet could have been buried any of that stuff, right? And uh, we went back to the spot where we were sliding, and and lo and behold, there's the wallet and the keys, and I thought, well, now that's weird. I mean, and it didn't, remember, Scott, it didn't look like they'd just fallen out. It was almost like they were placed in the spot they were at. Well, also, also what was odd was the two items were together. Exactly. That was, that was my point. And I thought, well, this is strange. And as we, I said, hey, let's, let's look around here and see if, what's, if somebody's up here maybe, right? And then we found that line of tracks. And they were, they were like 18-inch tracks going forever up that slope you could, because it was bright moonlight. You could see a long ways up there. How, long, how, how, how close were the tracks to those keys? Do you remember? Oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? 20, 30 feet? Uh, they were close one way or the other. Yeah, they were pretty close. From from our tracks or from the the tracks that set us on our little expedition anyway? The, the Bigfoot. Expedition tracks. Yeah, the Bigfoot tracks. Yeah, I would say it was like, yeah, 20 feet, something like that. Something like that. It wasn't real far. Not that I can remember. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we didn't go that far to find them. I mean, we just started looking no. around, and here is these footprints. It was like, damn. Well, it was like, here in Scott, I lost my keys. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> well, we'd already had some adventures prior to that. You know, I mean, the whole the whole trip was crazy, you know. It was the day that Scott... Go ahead, Scott. The, the, van, it's, the van itself was under a curse. Yeah, apparently so. Yep. Well, we we well, t- I had the Willis curse on it too. <laughs> well, you guys, and I know we've talked some of this on the show before, but you know, these are two of the guys that were also there. You know, so we take off, and me and Scott, Scott's driving. I'm in the front navigating, and Milo, I think you and Paul were in the middle, and then Kirk and Brian were in the very back. Yes, they were and, in the back, and we're heading down I five. Now, none of us had really been that far south, anywhere right i mean not I, like that i'd been down there hunting with my dad one time but i didn't you know wasn't paying attention to driving or anything so so on i5 yeah on i5 you know paul reaches up and he touches my shoulder and he's like now he's the guy you know you got to remember you know he's the big doofy guy he's like twice the size of any of the rest of us and he's got you know he, he the guy has fur you know the rest of us could barely start growing whiskers the guy had fur he like he had a caterpillar on his lip so we called it and and he was always going uh you know he, forever whenever we go someplace he was always dropping something off his pack and he'd say who's gonna stop drop my gear you know and, and it really ticked us off because he was forever dropping some crap so he, he reaches up and he touches my shoulder and he says hey do you think i should eat this and he has a can of they were sea ration beans, korean war korean war beans and franks and they were coming up out of the can on their own <laughs> Oh my God! And I Even said, if I passed science class, I would have known what that was. <laughs> I said, I think you need to get rid of those before they eat us, right? And then he's gonna chuck well, them. Didn't out. he actually? Go ahead, Scott. Didn't he actually try to open the? Didn't he actually try to open the can? 
He did open it. Yeah, he cat. did. He did open it. The <clears throat> the thing that was funny was because he was going to check him out the window, and that's when everybody said there's a state patrol behind us, and that's when everybody, <laughs> all these hands just started to grab for him. Yeah, everybody grabbed him, but once he was in mid-throw, and, and Scott goes, there's a state trooper behind us. <laughs> and we're like, no. Yeah. Oh, my God. So we get to the town of Castle Rock. Right, which was where our turnoff was to go, I think, up the Klamath River. Yeah. And, and they ended up, there was a Safeway there. And there was no plan whatsoever in this group out of six. It was three of us grabbed one shopping cart. The other three grabbed another shopping cart, went opposite directions, and just filled them with all the crap that each one of us wanted to eat, right? And most of it was canned food. No concept that we were going to be hiking up a mountain, right? So we throw yeah, in large cans. Large cans, right? We throw all this crap in the van and off we go. And I think you stopped and got gas. That's where the first incident happened, where the gas can got gas cap got left behind. And then uh, yeah, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't crucial to the car though. So we were able to continue. Right. So we get up to Spirit Lake. Right. Nobody's up there. It's you know November, so it's past season. And and if you guys remember, across the street from where. Um, there was like the ranger station there. There was this big parking lot. And it was like five acres in size, this big blacktop sheet, right? And nobody's up there. So we decided to drive to the far side of it. And we're thinking we're going to build a fire. And the wind was blowing so hard that we couldn't get a fire going, even though we, you know, we threw a gallon of white gas on it and everything else trying to get this fire going. <laughs> so oh, I, I think, bef- was it before or after the incident? I think it was... I think it was after. With the guy burning out the rubber? Yeah. Is that? Yeah. I think it was right there. Well, yeah. I think it was right there at that parking lot. <clears throat> I, it was. I, I'm trying to remember if it was before we went and f- lost the keys or after. But sometime, you know, I remember Paul, was it Paul and Kirk? Kirk had asthma. He was a little skinny guy. And they both had to pee. So they get out of the van. And, of course, we locked the door. <laughs> locked him out. And this guy, this car comes up in the middle of nowhere. And i got to remember, this road... It's a long road where at the very end, nobody's up there whatsoever. Must have been somebody from one of the nearby towns or something. Come up there and just burned these tires off. And this huge black cloud of smoke was coming directly at us. And and Kirk and, and Paul are out there beating on the side of the van. And, and Brian looks at him and he says, <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> so the cloud yeah. the cloud hits the van and you couldn't see an inch outside the window it was so concentrated right it was nasty and, and you could hear you could hear paul oh, coughing a lung up right so the smoke passes and, and kirk you know like i said he's got asthma so he's not he's not coughing or anything paul's coughing along up and dying and we open the door and and somebody says well how come he's coughing and you're not you got asthma and kirk's like i held my breath <laughs> The other dummy didn't think to hold his breath, right? Oh, God. The whole trip was like that, though, with him. It was, the whole trip. Everything. Then we get on to the next day. I I can't remember if we actually got any sleep in the van that night or not, but... No. um, We drove on up to the end of the road where the trailhead was, and then we see what we got to hike up. So we we put our packs on, and we knew we were going to have to come back because we had that... Remember that cabin tent, Milo, the uh, yeah. that canvas one that had no floor in it? <clears throat> it was the size of the top of the hall. Yeah, yeah. So we, we hike we hike up, we're hiking up there, and it's it was windy past in those days, you know, before the mountain blew. And uh, we got a, almost all the way up to Windy Pass, which was just a big, kind of an opening in the rocks, 
you know, let out to the plains of Abraham. So Brian and I got up there first. And we're sitting there taking a break. And, and a minute or two later, here comes Milo. And and Milo, we, we used to tell people, you know, that never met Milo, if you want to know what Milo's like, think of Animal on the Muppets. That's Milo. <laughs> and then people would meet Milo and say, oh, yeah, I see it. Okay. <laughs> so Milo, yeah. Milo's mad as hell. He's kind of jumping up and down and cursing. And, and Brian says, Milo, English. What, what happened? And he's like, oh, dumb, dumb so-and-so, you know, no, 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 drop my gear. And well, Paul dropped something. He goes, yeah, he dropped the whole pack. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Brian just kind of put our heads to our forehead, right? Oh, it was everything. It was like. It was everything. It was like everything. His sleeping bag would be like rolling down. Paul, are you going to get it? Uh... That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? If you go down and start catching that crap. So I, I asked you. Oh. I asked you. I said, "Did did you tell him to pick it up?" And it looked like somebody slapped you. And you hold the finger up and you go, "I'll be right back." And you go running back down the hill. Brian looks over at me and he says, "Dumbass." <laughs> now Brian, Brian was a little caustic to everybody, so that's just his personality. So here comes Milo. A couple minutes later, mad, just as mad as he was the first time. And after we got you calmed down, then you said, you know, dummy let all of his stuff roll all over the side of the mountain. And I'm like, oh, God. I said, well, let's, we'll just, we'll pick it up when we come back. We don't, we don't have time. We need to get up here and get set up. And we'll, we're going to come back out. So we get set up. And remember, um, you, me, Milo, you, me, and Brian, we went back to the van. Yeah, we went back. <clears throat> and so we didn't look at it going down the hill. So we grabbed the stuff, you know, the canned food and the tent. We hike up the mountain and we get to that spot. And figured, well, it's time for a break, so let's let's take a look at the damage. And Paul only had three things in his pack. Plastic ship models, baseball cards, and long underwear. That was it. That was his big plan to go in the mountains. Yeah, sleeping bag. Did he have a sleeping bag? Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember that. Because it was the first thing that was starting to drag down the hill. It was like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? So He was so, always well thought well, out. Yeah. So we said, well, well, I mean, yeah, I think the the, base, I, the baseball cards and ship models stayed. We weren't picking that stuff up. I wasn't. <laughs> was it mine? Nope. It was like, wow, you brought that kind of stuff out here? What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> you should have by now. They're probably worth money. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't going to give it to him if it, that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to give him like four hundred dollars and pennies about a couple of years ago. Then there were there were other things that happened. Of course, you know the the, the last morning we were there, and, and I don't know Adam and Tom. I'm sure you guys got questions, but uh, about the the last morning when it snowed, and we went out and got firewood, except for Paul and Milo. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. So yeah. Milo, Milo was squatted down blowing on the hot coals, and Paul was standing over and pouring gut, black powder on the coals. And the rest of us saw this and started backing up instinctually, knowing it's going to explode. And it did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one of us didn't know what all that was. <laughs> that's true. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I can't. Yeah, no. I, I, I'm going to have to tell you, that was an ignorant part of my yeah. You know, after, I grew up fast that day. After we knew you were okay, it was funny as hell. Yes, I know. 
It's like, man, what? It was like one of. It was like I looked just like the kid that was on Jurassic Park when he got blew off the fucking electric fence. That's a good one. You did look like that. That's a good analogy. You did look like that. I did too, man. That was the oh wow. His 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 goatee and eyebrows and everything were singed off. My eyebrows were like glued to my my. Oh yeah. Paul was standing there coughing along up like he did the day with the smoke. You know, the tires being blown up. He didn't learn his lesson about holding his breath. Uh, did did you guys know? Or, or at what point did you guys realize that Paul is packing black powder? Right then. Pockets. Right then. So that was my question too. Yeah. Exactly. It was there. that moment. Oh, right there. That yeah. moment. We had no uh, idea. I didn't even know what the stuff was. Actually, I didn't know what gunpowder was until I joined the army. Yeah, we you know? we had no idea he had the stuff with him. Yeah. Now, what do you think he was just being pragmatic and it was fire starter, or you just have no idea? He was just being stupid. That's all. <laughs> he, he would not. He would not know what the word pragmatic meant. I yeah. Hey. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I knew I wanted to kill him. I chased him all around that camp after that. <laughs> That's right, you did. <laughs> oh yeah, I did. I until he went right into the friggin' tent. <laughs> <laughs> then he was mine. <laughs> <laughs> now this was this was after the Clark. Clark incident or before? You know, I don't remember. I think it had to be before. uh, The uh, incident with the gas cap was on the way down there. Uh, The incident with the windshield was on the way home, just before we left the uh, camp, uh, the trailhead. Well, Milo, I think. Well, Milo, quick, quick, quick interjection. Um, When you saw those tracks, you know. I mean, when you were at the Clark Ranch, you saw the creature poking his head over the tent, right? Oh, yeah. So, this, yeah, this all happened. This must have been before, I would assume. Yeah, the Clark thing happened way before we took this trip. This trip okay. was kind of a culmination of all of us joining the military. And, and it was just like our last summer before we all joined. So, okay. it yeah. wasn't the summertime yet, but I think this the- is... I think the Clark Ranch must have been the spring of 76, and this was November 76, the Mount St. Helens trip. Yeah, yeah, correct. I think so. What were your thoughts, Scott, Milo? When you guys see these footprints, you got to be wondering okay, why why are the keys so close to the prints, and why didn't we see those prints before? Well, as as I recall, we did see. we did see at least one print on the hillside. I remember putting a long flashlight up against it to show length. And uh, it was very near that, that we found the keys and wallet. And at the time, it didn't occur to me, you know, how kind of odd that was, that the two items would be together. But um, I guess it, it just didn't occur to me at the time. You know, later on it did, that, you know, the odds again, the odds of that were very steep. <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of a coincidence. Yeah, because we, we, we thought we were up the creek, as they say. Well, and, and think about it. <clears throat> the keys fall out. They can be any places at any depth in that, you know, that uh, volcanic dust. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was for real. 
it was it was unbelievable that it was all together because we were digging holes in there we lost our rear ends in there and or you know so to find everything together that was that was remarkable well it was it was certainly a relief to me because i knew that that there was simply no way we could have gotten out of there without walking 10 or 15 miles we certainly didn't have cell phones back then and uh, we would have had to walk and then even when we reached some place i would have to call my dad and hope that he had a second set of keys that he could then drive his other car 500 miles to find us i would have been completely put on put on notice for the next five years probably <laughs> oh yeah ow <laughs> Pretty much. I think yeah, that would have been all of us. It's like my dad would have got on that too. Oh, wow. I also I also shot out the windshield with a slingshot. That was fun too. Oh yeah, that was the last. I, I can't remember if all of us were back down the mountain yet when we were leaving. We got down to the van. I remember I remember my I well, you, me and Scott, the three of us were there. And I went over to use the porta potty. And then I hear this, oh, God. And I come out, I'm like, oh, geez, what did they do now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, we had, so we had wrist rockets, for those who know what wrist rockets are. And Milo and I, and I can't remember who else, we, we had metal shop, and we kind of ran the metal shop. Nobody, nobody disciplined us or made us do anything, so we did what we wanted to. And we took some solid round stock that was an inch thick, and we cut half-inch <laughs> chunks. So... Milo and wow. Scott were shooting these things straight up in the air, and one of them came met down and landed right in the center of his dad's brand new VW van windshield, and made this nice. Oh. And it was like two or three rings, like you know, like a like a bullseye, a target. <laughs> wow! Yeah, the- you know what was you know what was funny though. You guys, uh, Milo and Will, have met my father, I think. And uh, I, when I got home with the car, I was really upset you know about what he was going to do and i rolled the car in and i said you got to come out and look at something and he saw it he goes well boys will be boys <laughs> yeah he was cool about it i mean yeah wow. he was very he was, he was very cool i was i thought he was going to be really mad but he wasn't scott was sweating bullets the whole way i would too i mean i mean if that was my car i wouldn't you guys wouldn't see me for a year <laughs> yeah your dad would have uh he would have had his own unique things he would have done to you <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Woo. Milo's father was a little more rough around the edges. That's true. I was safer in the army, man. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather spend I'd rather spend five more tours in Iraq than be home with him. Woo. Oh, man. <laughs> oh yeah. Your dad prepared well, you, know, you for your combat, basically. What? Your dad prepared you for combat, Milo? Well, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> he, he actually, I think, when I went through basic training and AIT, I was like, God, this isn't. <laughs> and then, you know, I was like, I had a, I had a, all my drill sergeants, well, all of our drill sergeants were like Vietnam era guys, you know, so they go, I'm going to kill you if you don't pass. I'm like, I'm not scared. That's right, you haven't met my dad. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is easy. <laughs> so when do I grow up on the other side of all this? You know, when all the cartoons they always show a scrawny little crap guy going through, and then on their side he's a big buff. Well, one of them was that going to happen to me? I still weighed 115 pounds on the other side of AIT. 
crap. You know, that's, I can run like that's a the crazy thing, bastard, though. That's the thing about drill sergeants. They're kind of consistent. Uh, they will state something to you and a request, and then they'll say, or I'll kill you. I don't think I don't think I don't think mine ever said that. Mine did. Mine was couldn't wait to say that was his favorite thing. I know more ways to kill you than you know how to die. (laughs) Really? (laughs) We should probably we should probably talk about my favorite sayings after that. You know, we should probably talk about the Clark Ranch thing a bit. Do I I got to tell you, living bejesus out of me. (laughs) My favorite part. And, and I'm still trying to picture how this worked, but I guess you guys were back to back around the campfire. And Will, you're leaning over, listening to Milo. Milo, you're looking back at the tent, right? And you saw something. Well, Milo, we I, we were facing all four directions, and I was facing the opposite, out away from the tent. And Milo says, "Hey, I, I want to ask you something." So I kind of leaned my head back and didn't really look at him. And and he turned around, you know, to ask me whatever. And then when he turned back. This thing was standing. Well, Milo can tell it. Oh, it, well, the no, that wasn't the same tent we took to Mount St. Helens, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was the same one. Okay, well, that I mean, you're talking at least seven feet high, and what I saw was like glowing eyes. I, I, it was glowing at me. I was like, oh, I'm about man. It was, it was. I gotta say, <clears throat> being what, eight, seventeen, eighteen years old, out like that, and I was like, "That was your first outing, wasn't it, Milo? First camping?" Yeah, camp? with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So I hear we hear this. You know, we're on edge already because there'd been a lot of these screaming and all this stuff going on, right? And Milo goes, "Oh, sh- <laughs> really?" <laughs> Really, and and we, by the time we all whipped around and looked, of course, the thing had just stepped back in the dark. But, you know, well, that's... Well, it was, I wish I had... I, did we have, only have, like, two flashlights that worked by then? I think we I think we still had the one that barely worked. <laughs> yeah, well, that thing was being shaken. I knew it was shaking like crazy. Work! But what I saw was from the glow from the, the, the fire yeah. and and I was trying to see if I could get a shadow but it, or you know I was trying to see what it was because when the eyes I swear to God they had to be that far apart you know it like, was like 10 inches apart or something right yeah I would say oh. and and at least nine nine feet in the air it was it was above you quite a bit yeah yeah. Because I was looking straight up, you know, I was like, like that. Oh. Now, for people, for people listening who don't know the story, you know, this was this was after I had met John Green and Renee Hinden in the summer of '75, and and they asked me to be their eyes and ears. So the guys and I would talk in school about this, and remember how far we all lived far apart. I think Scott and I were probably the closest to each other, and but everybody else was pretty far flung, right? And so we all talked. Well, I lived in Parkland, Spanaway, so. Yeah. So I, I, we were like, okay, well, has anybody heard anything in your area of weird stuff going on? And, of course, Paul, you know, he pipes up and says, well, you know, the Clark family has been hearing some screams. And we're like, okay, well, go get permission for us to go out to their property. So he did. And remember, we, I can't remember, it was just the four of us. We rode the bus to his place out in Roy. And then we, we hiked with our packs up to the, the railroad tracks up to the Clark place. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Scream's going on over there. You guys can go out there. We're not going. <laughs> and so we hiked out into the brush. 
and and we made camp. Uh, I think it was just starting to get kind of dark. We just found a cedar cedar thicket and we decided to camp in there. And we made our food and stuff, and and we started hearing screaming. And remember, there was one that was kind of relatively close, maybe a quarter mile tops. And then there was another one farther away answering, and this went on for go back and would go back and forth for a while. Then it would quiet down. And then the tree frogs, there were just a thousand tree frogs out there. The screaming would go on periodically, and then it would stop, and it would come up again. And, you know, it would just, every once in a while, it would go on. And then the tree frogs, like on one side, would just all stop. Yeah, that freaked me out. It was weird. Because, I mean, just, yeah. there'd be like hundreds of them on one side of us that would just go silent all at once. And then on another side, they'd go silent. And so this would repeat all the way around us. So you could tell something was circling us. And then, and then they'd be, I'd be silent for a while. Then they'd begin croaking and, and it'd be a noisy again. And that would repeat periodically. And then I don't know if you remember, I don't know if we remember what time it was, 10, 11 o'clock at night, Paul decided he was going to, he was getting tired, wanted to go to sleep. And, and you and I were pretty amped up and, and the other guy with us, uh, was amped up too. And I said, well, I think we better stay in pairs, you know, two of us awake all the time. And Milo and I were partners and then the other two were partners and, one of you know paul wanted to go to sleep the other guy didn't want to go to sleep so i'm like just just go to sleep we'll figure it out right i don't think you i don't think you and i would have gone to sleep all night anyway milo nah, <clears throat> but nah. uh, so we're sitting in front of the tent and the fire is pretty close to the front of the tent just a, just a few feet so i remember you were sitting right in the middle right in the middle in front of the door i was sitting there just kneeled down on the side in the corner and the other guy was uh, over the other side there so Remember, we heard all the rustling around. We're we're joking, you know, about you know Paul and they're playing with himself and stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> and about that time, Paul about tears the tent down, coming out the front, and he's like, "It's not very damn funny messing with me like that." And we're all looking up at him like, "Well, that's a pretty good idea." What none of us thought of it, but <laughs> you know, so I was like, "Shucks, damn, he beat me to it." I know, right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, "Well, look." What I said, you sure you weren't dreaming? He says, no, I never went to sleep. I, I was listening to talk, laying there listening to you guys talk. Because I'm thinking, yeah, right. He fell asleep and he was dreaming, right? And I said, well, look, tell us what happened. You know, explain to us. You know, he says, well, one of you guys reached in the tent and grabbed me, tried pulling me out. And I thought, well, that would have been fun too, but we didn't think of that either. <laughs> well, it didn't have, yeah, because it didn't have a floor, did it? No, that was it the one without the floor. It? So he yeah. th- he thought instead of trying to disturb him going coming through the door getting something out of the packs, one of us was going to reach under the side of the tent, and I said, "Okay, so how are one of us all these little guys going to grab your big butt and drag you out of the tent?" Well, I don't know. I don't know. I said, "Well, how big was his hand on his lower back?" I said, "Okay, well, tell me how long the hand was. Show me from the heel of the hand where it, where it touched you. You could feel it, right? Yeah." And where the fingertips were, yeah, and it would have been about like a foot and a half long. I said, well, none of us got a hand that big. <laughs> I said, so it wasn't us. And I'm still not believing him. I think, all right, you know, I, I said, Milo, bring that flashlight over here, the one that barely worked. And if if, oh, if yeah. something happened, there's got to be proof, right? So right behind where I was kneeling down, about two feet, here was this big bold out spot. Do you remember how soft the dirt was around there? Right. And there was like a, and it was like four inches deep, this big bold out spot. And back behind that, there were, there were 18 inch, I think they were 18 inch. They were pretty big footprints going back into the timber. We're like, well, crap. (laughs) One of these things snuck up and was trying to, 
you know, get a little boot, play with Paul, get a little booty collar or something with Paul. We don't know, but <laughs> well, we were we were theorizing. <laughs> I don't know how it was. They always seemed to be attracted to Paul, but it must have been the mustache. I don't know. <laughs> Well, he is furry. He did, he did have he did have the appearance of a small Bigfoot. He did, yeah, yeah. He would have been a baby, baby. He would have been he would have been one of the prematures. <laughs> so what all? What else do you remember that night, Milo? I mean, I, I, all of us had different well, things, was, you know. I, I think a lot of it for me it was because it was one of my first times out. I was just like trying to gather everything in. I was like, "Ooh, that's oh, okay." That. You know, I mean, Milo, go do, okay, okay, okay. I was like, like that all the time. So, I mean, but my, I gotta say, the biggest thing with me was just looking at that, those, those eyes glowing in over my head about nine, ten feet. Yeah, you were the, yeah. only, you're the only one that actually saw one. I mean, we heard him plenty that night. So, I mean, that, that, I, I'm amazed that it. If it would have screamed, I I would have definitely would have defecated right then. I think all of us would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if if anything, right at that moment, that would have cemented everything for me. If that, but you know, I I looked at the eyes. I was like, you know, being 63 now, it's like, well, maybe. I, things were playing tricks on me, you know, but I, I looked at everything and there is no way that what I saw would have, there was no other thing that could have been reflecting. So it had had to be eyes that high up and no bird would do that. No, it was, it was too late. Yeah. It was too late. And there was nothing back there. I mean, yeah. And that's the same spot that you guys found the footprints, right? I mean, it's, it's the same yeah. So another, I'm, I'm just trying to make the connection here. Milo sees the creature standing behind the tent. Mm-hmm. Will you go behind there and you take a look and you see that where the thing had been sitting down or, on, or on, crouched on down. the side of the tent? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, and then the footprints. So yeah, yeah. And then because I was like facing right, the fire was in between us, me, and I was looking at the tent, and then I, I just glance right up and and that's but i think a lot of it was because i had the fire and it was reflecting whatever i was seeing yeah for me to see the eyes so i it was to me i'm i'm still it still gets me where i was like freaked out were the eyes when you saw it was that before paul was you know groped or was that after paul was groped? i would say after i think it was after yeah it was later because that's a reason. Yeah, because that's the reason we were facing all four directions with the fire yeah, backs. Yeah, because we were really spooked at that point. And yeah, because yeah, after Paul came out bitching that we were grabbing him and stuff, we're like, <laughs> man, there was no. I don't go after free crap. I have to work for mine. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are hearing these things. All right, you're, you're camped at a like a huge pond or a small lake and you hear these things periodically walking around the lake or no no we're well we're at the the squally river wasn't that far from us we didn't see it we weren't close to water well there must have been some kind of water out there because we were in a in an area with a lot of cedar trees yeah but there wasn't any we saw in the back of that in that all part of that 
Fort Lewis Military Reservation. It has a lot of swampy ground. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of out that direction. If you keep going out that way past Clark's property, that's where, where yeah. the military base is. But other than that, I, I, when we when we were looking at all the footprints, and well, it was kind of like a big depression where we we are we could have assumed that a knee was like he dropped to a knee. Yeah, it looked like it was kneeling down to reach under the tent. Yeah, it was like, oh, look at a goodie. I got Paul. And you know, Ooh, you don't worry. Soft taco. That's what that would be called, boy. <laughs> you know, you know what got me about that, Milo, was that was only two feet behind where I was kneeling down, and I didn't hear anything. Yeah. That kind of freaked me out. You know, I ju- yeah, I just thought about that. Okay, that's what that that's a question I have. Will is are are you saying that you were kneeling down and and this thing came up behind you while you were doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Milo was sitting right it in front of the to. tent, in front of the opening, and then the other guy with us was on the other side of him, and I was on Milo's right, at the corner of the tent, kneeling down. Well, you know, here's wow. something that doesn't make sense though, is Paul didn't just come out bitching, you know, like in the tent. Hey, leave me alone. Nothing like that. I think he got scared where he probably pissed his pants. <laughs> he- he may have. I don't know. I wasn't checking. <laughs> well, I, I was like, it wasn't Come my on. turn. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, if you, I mean, a bear paw, I mean, hand to hand, I mean, it got to be that wide. Well, right? yeah. Well, I mean, that was my thinking. It's like, well, now, wait a minute. He was, he's trying to say, well, one of us, one of us did it. We were all small guys, right? Or at least we were all skinny as heck back then. But, uh, yeah. you know, we weren't going to drag his big butt because. What did he weigh, like 230, 240 pounds? We were all like 120 pounds. Yeah, well, definitely. I was 110, maybe. Yeah, so, I mean, none of us were going to pull his big butt out of the tent. So, and then I, and then I, that's why I said, okay, look, I, I'm always, always trying to figure things out in details, right? To wrap my head around something instead of just, you know, reacting to it. And I'm like, okay, I need to see, I need to know how big the hand is. So, where did it start and stop on your back? And then when he said it, it was like a foot and a half long, how can that be one of us? I mean, obviously that wasn't us. Right. So that's, that's what gets me. That's what, you know, that's what bewilders me to know in. I'm like, how does he not know that? So there was, there was the second part of this was Scott where Scott was involved. And it was, it was about two weeks after that, that I, I come home from school and, and one of my sisters said, Hey, you know, John Green called. He's in Seattle. He's on his way down. He wants you to know if you'll take him out to the Clark Ranch. And I'm like, oh, crap. So I called Scott. And uh, Scott, if you want to jump in there. Well, yeah, I was uh, very familiar with John Green's writing. I had pretty much read, uh, read everything he'd ever written, really. And uh, when I got this call from uh, Will that he was that he knew John Green and that John Green was going to take us or at least come out to the this ranch with us, I I simply didn't believe him. I thought it was a bunch of crap that he would claim that to to know this guy. So well, I semi willingly went out to his place at the appointed time, and oh hi and there, I'm John Green, and I and I recognized him, and I had to take it all. I had to take it all back. You know? <laughs> wow. So so we load up that's in Green's pretty, VW that's pretty, van. That's pretty amazing. We load up in v, in, in Green's VW van, and we head out to Roy. And we got there, and it was it was just getting dark when we got there. 
And we had no sooner, we picked Paul up on the way. So all of us get out of Green's van. We'd only barely got out and the Clark, Clark family was standing out there with us and the scream started. You remember that, Scott? Oh, yeah. And, and we, yeah, definitely. What they, what they sound like? I would describe it as kind of like extremely amped up coyote. Did you guys have any kind of a talk with the, um, you know, the owners of the Clark Ranch at any point And, you know, hey, what's going on? And, you know, because it sounded like they weren't too keen on going out there with you. I, I don't think we, I mean, Paul talked to him. He knew him. I didn't really know the Clark boys that well. I don't know, Milo, do you remember? Well, I, well, from the first time when we went to the Clark Ranch and stuff, we we let everybody know that we're going in the back. And, you know, other than that, no one wanted to go out with us. Yeah, they didn't. They weren't too interested in going out there. They're like, yeah, you guys can go out there, but we're not going. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> but you know, it was weird. Yeah. It was weird when we, we took we took John Green there. He, we were there only there like 10 minutes. And he's like, well, I need to get back to British Columbia. So we load up in a van. He drops us off at our respective places. And and, and I was at his house years later. God, I, I remember probably exactly how many years later, 15 years or so. And and, he, and that later, much later, he, he looked at me. He says, you know, I'm still kicking myself for not taking a recorder out to the Clark Ranch. I mean, wow. that's crazy. I mean, the screams were, like Scott said, they were like amped up coyotes. They were similar to coyotes, but they weren't coyotes. And it was and it was loud. Yeah, much, much louder than a regular coyote. Much louder. Extreme, extreme volume. Well, is I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Is it possible that Bigfoot can mimic other animals, only much, wow. much louder? This is, I, this I is for so. Will and Adam. <laughs> like owls, for example. Yeah. Owls, right? <laughs> well, just maybe. Oh yeah, Scott. Why not? Scott and Milo don't Why know. Not? We we were in Oregon a couple of months back, and uh, had a bad situation there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, this is a good video coming soon. Don't worry. <laughs> It'll oh, be a cool. good time had by all. Well, it was good. It was two in the morning. We got surrounded by these things. We're making loud noises. And <clears throat> we held a brief, about a five-second Democratic meeting, unanimous vote. Uh, we're heading back to the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, Dalton had a little different phrase for it, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> more, of, too. more of a get the truck out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He reminds the truckers quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was he was pointing out that while we could, st I mean, the object was to try and get some footage, right? And he goes, "Well, what do you guys want to do? Because we could try to go towards them and try to get the footage. However, they're working an agenda, and what is what could happen is they could push a tree over on the road, and we'd already come across a tree that had been pushed over, and the top had been ripped off by hand. And this is like about a six inch, uh, you know, diameter. Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but probably a smaller cedar, I would guess. But uh, anyway, and so we'd seen lots of trees torn apart. And the tree that was pushed over, I do not remember seeing that when we drove in. Because we were, as we drove in, right. night was falling, and um, whenever uh, Will or, or Dalton would see something intriguing, they'd pull over. And, uh, and so we saw a lot of 
tree breaks and a lot of things like that. So this thing seemed new, and uh, it was very much like we were being given a message that we were really in the wrong place. We weren't welcome. There was already a tree pushed over, and so, uh, you know, Dalton's pointing out, you know, guys, um, all they would have to do is push a big tree over, and then they've got us boxed in. And then he didn't have to finish the thought. We all pretty much got the picture. <laughs> then we're, then we're <laughs> ham sandwiches. <laughs> Very clearly, and, yeah. That this well, you know, and they I were might... drawing us in. You remember that? that yeah. That sounds kept. We would follow the sounds. We go further along, further along, and pretty soon we're like, yeah. "Hey, they're drawing us into a trap." Because you could hear them on both sides of us at that point. It was a kind of a horseshoe. Well, and, and another note is that the uh, the owl sounds, okay, which were um, like a three different pitches in this owl call, so not not actually an owl, but um, there's a point, once the owl calls begin, and we're walking and we're listening, they really don't let up. It's just some are a little louder than others, but there's almost a constant owl calling happening on that mm. soundtrack, because I've, I've yeah. gone over it quite a bit. And so I feel like, you know, the, 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 the messages were being sent, you know, that We've got people in our neck of the woods much too late. They've, their, their warranties expired. We should go, <laughs> you know, visit them. And um, Well, and those owls, they're like 60, 50, 60 yards or more up into the heavy, heavy, very, yeah. very forested timber. So that sound should have been attenuated to just a very quiet sound. And they were loud. They were loud. I mean, extremely yeah, wow. there were, and you got all very, that. Very, you have all that recorded. I do. Yeah, we've got awesome. We've, we've, we've got a lot of that. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty compelling. And um, Dalton and Tom and I think Will. I never really quite heard it, but the three of them heard uh, movement in the timber that me. was uphill to our right and downhill to our left. Yes. And, they heard it quite a bit, and, and Dalton was estimating that we had about three above us and two below us when we reached our trucks, that we were kind of being escorted out. And uh, our, we were being escorted, whether it was in or out, but uh, we were being escorted. And so, you know, we popped back in the trucks, had the meeting, confirmed that uh, let's come back tomorrow when the sun is out and, you know, and so forth. So. And we did come back, and we saw, again, a ton of evidence that we had visited uh, the evening before. But, um, you know, the birds were chirping, and uh, the owls were not, you know. So uh, <laughs> we were in better shape on day two. Well, Adam and Tom, while we got Scott and Milo here, you guys want to ask them more questions about, uh, you know, the, the old days there? and Yeah, so, we're, yeah, you know, so go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's, that's yeah, I've. I was listening to what you were saying. Well, we've heard a lot about Clark Ranch, and we've heard a lot about uh, Mount St. Helens, and I'm wondering if there's not, if there weren't additional incidents along the way or in, you know, that well, happened we, that I haven't heard about. I, I think um, there was a time when we were, like, really bored, and we went down into uh, the canyon, and, and we, you know, we were, were uh, looking inside the like rock structures and saw 
I don't know, uh, some glowy rock stuff. But, you know, um, we were, by that time, we were throwing boulders off of each other and trying to, you know, run run, run boulders into everybody. So. Hey, fellas, do you remember, <laughs> you remember the time, I mean, all of us, there was a group of us that were like around 10 of us in school, and not all of us would go together in these little campouts. There was one time when we all did, you remember? When John and his two brothers came and, and all, there was like 10. Oh, there. yeah. When was that? Oh, that was, I can't remember. That would have been in the spring of 76 sometime too, I think. But you remember we went out, we had, we set up two campfires because there were so many of us. We needed two to get so everybody could be warm. And, and there was the incident where, um, John's brother, Jeff, you know, he's being a smart aleck and, and he, it was dark and he threw a rock out into the brush. We're all kind of like, oh, there's, what's that? And. And then he, and John told me recently or a while back here, he says, well, he says, Jeff leaned over and he whispered to me, he says, do you think I'd get in trouble if I told the guys I did that? And he says, yeah, you would. So better be quiet. And then, and then remember the branch, the big branch come flying back in and hit Paul. Yeah. Where was that? That was, geez, I want to say that was out towards, you remember, well, you remember where your mom lived the first time I met her? Yeah. I think it was kind of out in that area. Canyon. On Canyon. Yeah, right, right. Do you remember that, Scott? I, I may not have been involved in this particular one. I, th- I think you were there. I think all of us were there. Because you had the, you oh, had the place where you had two campfires going? Yeah. And John Adams was there with his two brothers. and. If the Ford pickup oh, was there, I was there. Because you remember, Milo, it was when we had the, we made this, the dueling swords in the metal shop. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! And we we, we get wow. we got the bright idea to go running up the hill after this these things, and then when we all got up there, we looked back at the fires and we saw the silhouettes of the things getting into our gear. <laughs> wow! That, yeah, just... was that was down in in the valley where my mom lived? Yeah, right, right. right. Wow. Okay. Oh yeah, that was freaky. Well, tell tell what you remember from that, Milo. Well, I know when. Now, I remember when the rocks were thrown, stuff was being checked back at us. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I don't remember how much. I mean, I because each one of us had our own, you know, everybody has their own things that they see in here. So, but it seemed like I, that's where I heard a lot of screaming. That was, that was when I heard a lot of chatter or something, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it was earth moving. It was just, wow, that's just unusual for somebody that doesn't go out like that, you know, because I didn't start going out doing this stuff until I met Will and Scott. But, I mean, all my stuff, I was, I came from Long Beach, California. So that, anything that that sounded like a mouse fart, I thought was wild beast. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Milo, um, so you guys were up on the hill you'd gone chasing these things and you turn around you look back and you're looking at the camp and you see these things right you see silhouettes of yeah what they look like of they're going through your stuff and well you I mean, know what? i i know from you know i mean guy you could put this to like seeing too many monster movies but you know a a, a dark shape and then it was like you could barely you could tell that there's no neck, you know, there, these things, it was like built like a, a triangle, you know, I mean, it, it was solid. I mean, well, no, that wasn't where I, 
I saw that. It was like when we went back in the Buick. Remember back in the behind where almost where uh, Bill lives, and we used to take yeah. my dad's. Yeah, that's that's where uh, that's where all the Puyallup Screamer stuff happened. Yeah. Now I see. I'm getting all this all. I I need to write that down because I forgot about that. But that's where I heard all the stuff at, and then the stuff that happened at my mom's house was more more physical, more more movement, and mm-hmm. and just crashing through the woods, and then. You know, me being what seventeen, eighteen years old, screaming like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, tell tell the story about what happened at your mom's house. That's a you know what? Where were you? Well, where that's the where that's where we because Bill and I we we'd go in, in the mill shop and I, we made swords and all kinds of weird crap to take out with us <laughs> and. Yeah, this is what we we armed ourselves with, you know. And I remember <laughs> one time when Scott he had a twenty two that had like a hair hair trigger, and he you could basically just wiggle and that thing would go off. <laughs> wow! Uh, that and, and, and but that was the most we ever had out there was just us with wrist rockets and charge, you know. I mean, yeah, let's go take. You know, you know it's funny because because <laughs> I had guns. And and never took him out. <laughs> you know, hell. And it's gosh. a good thing we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Man, we would have pissed something off. There, there was they one were time. Just laughing at us. There was one time Scott and I went up, just the two of us. Remember, it was up the Buckley watershed, and you and I hiked up way up in there, and it was raining like a son of a gun. And I don't know what we thought we were going to do up there, but we hiked way back up in there, and I had my twelve gauge. And it took an act of Congress to get the fire going. We finally got it going. And then we're like, well, there's no more dry wood to put on it. So we decided to hike out. And we took turns blasting the fire with my 12-gauge to put it out. (laughs) That's right. We took out our our rage vicariously. We did. (laughs) Was that like recent, recent? That wasn't like when we were in high school, was it? No, it was after. It was after high school. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it was raining like it was raining like dog crap, and we didn't even have a tent. I don't think. Oh, it was miserable. Yeah, it was an old logging road. We hiked way back in there. Wow. At night. <laughs> and walked. Ooh. And and walked out at night. And walked out at night. Yep. Holy crap, dude! And, really? And, and how many flashlights? I think we actually had a, each had a flashlight then. Wow, oh, amazing! I, so. I know. I was amazed too. Yeah, yeah totally. I would have been. Especially now, after being in the military and stuff, if I don't go anywhere without a flashlight, I was like, man. <laughs> it's probably all those Ooh. all those days that we went out and only had the one flashlight that barely worked. <laughs> I mean, really barely worked. It barely worked, yeah. I have a flashlight in every room of the house now. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> See, it must it must go back to those days. <laughs> It it has to, man, because I'm not going to wake up with some hairy palm slapping on my butt. <laughs> well, that would only be Paul. <laughs> yeah, that ain't ever going to happen either. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was it that went up the, there's a, uh, a oil company access road or oil pipeline access oh, road? That had been Bill and John or that somebody. Was, that was me and John and his brother, Jeff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Scott, you know that story. Because I you? was, 
I didn't even. What's that? You, you know that story, don't you, Scott? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, for those listening who don't, I, I have to retell it because it's just funny. Right after John Green and Renee Hinden went back to Canada, I had called John, but he had a summer job, you know, when and to see if he wanted to go up there when they invited us to go. And I called somebody else. I think, Milo, I think you were working that summer too. And I don't know where you were, Scott, but I, I called. Uh, so we, we went after they left. You know, John calls me and he comes back. And it was, you know, a few days after. And he says, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to go out and see where this was. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's, let's go. So we borrowed his parents' station wagon. And his younger brother, Jeff, came along. So we drive out there. And it's, and it's always dark when we get someplace, right? So it's, it's a gas pipeline access way through the timber and it's still there. And it's maybe a hundred feet wide, this opening, you know, with field grass in it. So the three of us decide we're going to walk quietly along one side. Now, John and I actually had flashlights that kind of worked. Uh, and periodically we would shine them at the, at the opposite tree line for whatever, I don't know, to see if we could see anything. And at one time, and we didn't do it at the same time, like one time John had Chinese light and then turn it off and then we'd walk a little bit and then I'd turn mine on and that's kind of how we went. So one time when I turned mine on, I shined it across there and here's this eye shine, these bright eyeballs over there and they're pretty high up. And I turned my light off and I told the guys, I said, I see, I see eyes over there. So I said, John, let's, let's point both our lights over there and see if we can see something. So we shine our lights over there. There's no, no eye shine this time, but then somebody, something goes crashing through the timber and you hear this boom, 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 boom. These big heavy footfalls that something is running and it's two legged. What's running. You could tell very clearly. And of course, you know, at this time we're crapping ourselves and, um, <laughs> uh, what got us was when it stopped that's what freaked us out because we're thinking, oh, hell, it's going to turn around and come back at us. So I told the guys, I said, now, we need we need to be, we need to go back to the car in a very orderly, calm fashion. We took three steps and broke into sheer panic. <laughs> Almost killed each other getting to the car. And then for people that have seen the movie Poltergeist from, you know, 82, uh, you know, they're in the car and their hand, you know, whoever was trying to start the car, get the keys, the ignition, you know, was fumbling and they're scared to death. That was me and John, you know, John's trying to get the keys and I'm like, hurry, 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 hurry. And the whole time his brother, Jeff is locked outside. <laughs> John fires the car up, throws it in gear, goes peeling out. And his brother's like, ah, freaking. <laughs> and to this day, to this day, Jeff has no recollection of that night. <laughs> oh, wow. A lot of yeah. Hey, well, when you and me went out, when you came up, you know, what, last year, two years? Yeah. When we went through the train tracks? Yeah. That was something else, too, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, well, that's the first time that happened, that place, that was back in 1972, when the very first okay. time I saw footprints, I didn't even, never heard the word Bigfoot before up to that point. You know, that's where, where Mark Barshaw and I were heading over, because he came and stayed the weekend at my place. And, and it snowed and we were bored. So we thought, well, let's go to John's and then I'll see if we, the three of us can figure out something to do. And we couldn't find the trail. So we decided to go down the road and hit the tracks because the tracks right right in front of John's place. And we found, we found some guts laying between the rails in the snow. And we're like, well, how the hell did these get here? There's no footprints of anything in the snow. 
So I told Mark, I said, you go down ahead and I'll climb this embankment. You know, the embankment I went up there <laughs> and there was freaking footprints all over the place in the snow. And I said, Hey, come and look at this. And, and it was really cold that day. So the guts should have been frozen pretty quickly and they weren't. And that's what freaked us out. I said, those aren't frozen yet. Whatever did that is really close by here. That just happened. So we took off running to John's. And, you know, John had two younger brothers and two younger sisters. So there's all these kids and, and we're only 14 at the time, you know, and, and there was just pandemonium going on in John's living room and his dad came out and he's like, settle down, settle down. What's going on? You know? And so we told him what we saw and he grabbed a 45 pistol and the camera and he says, take me back there and show me what you found. So all this gaggle of kids, you know, go back there with John's dad and I think we destroyed probably 99% of the tracks just, you know, milling around there. <laughs> but but John's dad did take some pictures, and um, he told us what, and I don't know where he got the information, what little he knew, but he told us what, you know, there was there was a, a big hairy monster called Bigfoot, and it's in the Northwest, and we're thinking, wow, there's there's monster, real monsters out here in the woods. And uh, so that's that's where that location was. That we, that's where we found the footprints. Did they ever... Did you ever get those pictures? I have I have one of them. Yep. You do. Yeah. You do. Wonder if I can I yeah. I'll I'll send it to that you. That would though. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'll send you some I can share I'll send you and Scott some recent screams we got too that are really good. Okay. Some good ones. They're not my well, they're not my I, screams, but they're good. Cuz Scott and I were supposed to take a couple of trips, but my mom had cancer, so she Everything's cool now with that, but oh, that's you know, good. now we're now we are hitting and missing trying to plan a plan a trip somewhere so we can take the RV and go. We'll get it eventually. Yep, yep. Now that we're retired, Tom, do you have do you have a location in mind, Tom? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I have a maybe, I have a couple of shirts you for you guys too. <laughs> the bait. <laughs> oh. Bait. <laughs> you guessed it. The duck drops down. Bait. That's funny. <laughs> take him. He runs slower. <laughs> That's right. Always take somebody that runs slower and you're good. <laughs> Always. So that's one good thing with having Paul around, man. You knew you were going to be the first. <laughs> but you know, they would have just groped him. <laughs> nah. That would have been their play toy there. That would have been a toy. Oh, I don't see that being anything else. But uh, no, you know, I that that sounds like fun. I'm getting a lot of my stuff all prepared for that. But uh, um, on the on the healthy sides, though, I'm getting stronger and I'm getting my pulmonary rehab back. So hey, we're good. Cool. So that that have put me in in the realm of getting back where I can, you know, hang with all the big guys. Nice. We have right. wearing the bait shirt. Look out for the bait shirt. That's all. Yeah, I'll give it to Scott. Okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just glad to hear you're feeling better. Yeah, I'm glad that we're we're going to hook up and you're retired and we can do, you know. That's right. You got all the spare time in the world. Yep. Now, now the, now the. I haven't missed work yet. You haven't? You haven't missed it at all? Not even one little bit. 
Wow. <laughs> you know, I gotta say it's different from being in the military though. I miss a lot of that. You know, it's just weirder than I I guess than being working in a factory or whatever. But you know, I I I'm cool, so let's let's plan a trip like that, you know. Maybe because I know Jenny will probably want to go on some weird stuff like that. But uh, oh, that that remind me because my uh, my uh, our son-in-law he used to live right down the road in in Enumclaw with us, and there's this his house. Him and his mom came home late from I don't know basketball practice or something, and something knocked flood lamp. And and it, it was twelve feet up in the air, and it, he said it was. It, it, they thought it was a bear. They saw it. They actually saw it hit the the flood lamp. Wow! And and Lyle told me about that. It's and not gonna be a bear. So I'm gonna have to talk to him about that. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's not gonna be a bear that high. No, not no twelve feet. <laughs> it, it, but he said, you know, it, I think it was Bigfoot. I was a man. I I believe it. Because I've seen stuff, too, when I was young, you know? It was like, man, that's crazy. Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, the poor bears, think about it from their perspective. They get bl- they're victims, but they get blamed for this stuff. <laughs> well, they, you know, yeah. But, you know, to be an apex predator and everybody talks. I mean, you look at some of the stuff that these guys, I, I, I'm, I'm going off track here, but. Look at look at a shark, and then you look at what they eat on. That stuff's gigantic. You know, I mean, whales, uh, manatees, all this stuff. I mean, they weigh a good thousand, two thousand pounds. Look at moose. That's a, a fifteen hundred pounds. You know, oh, so yeah. we then I look at us. I'm like, man, what the hell are we thinking? <laughs> you know, really, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna go out here." Was that like that Bobo and all those silly people? Oh my God, you guys gonna go out there and make this stuff come to you? Yeah, I'm have fun with that, but Bozo. <laughs> I don't think the raves or the uh, lasers worked out that well, as far as I know. You know, it, it, no, you know, I mean, where are you gonna aim it at? You know, you got to see the stuff. Well, that, that's that's Sasquatch crap. Did you actually see it? Crap? No. Then don't tell me it was Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, see, so, you know, that's what I like about Will's ideas and stuff. It doesn't show it, so it's going out in the middle of the lake somewhere and doing his thing out there. I really believe in that. I, re- I like those ideas, but to say it... Well, that's that's Sasquatch droppings. What? What do you know about that? How do you know? <laughs> yeah, point. see, I'm just going off on the whole. Yeah, it's <laughs> TBI. I, I blame everything on TBI. So what the hell? <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah, there there was some cool stuff that we did when we were kids and. I, you know, not a kid anymore, but I, I can definitely get back into a lot of that just by going, yep, that's, you know, with the hardware we now got, I mean, with digital, this and infrared that I got a lot of stuff. So we're good there. 
Very cool. I, I remember you on one of the blabs talking about the uh, the the GoPro hat with yeah four GoPros and mount them on a hat looking north, south, east, west, and then whatever happens, you've got it. It's on. Yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> I do too. I really do. That that sounds cool. But uh, it was like that. The other thing was it. Well, I've been trying to get all my maps all categorized and stuff because I got all my military maps from like Fort Lewis and Unimclaw. I got one that's like 12 feet by something. It has all of Mount Rainier in it. Wow. Uh, that way we can track stuff and then I can grab Scott and head off into the hills. Adam, do you nice. have any more questions? We're, we're kind of running short on time, guys. I think that's that. That's all I've got in my in my list. We so need far. we need to have Scott, hey, and Milo, Scott and Milo on a Q and A. Oh yeah, yeah, that'd oh, be boy. a great idea. I want to thank you guys because this is a, I've you know heard about you, read about you in Will's books, and so thank you. This was great. Got a chance oh, to no, meet no you problem. over the thank phone you. anyway. Yeah, at least put up with no, my I, craziness anyway. I think I need a a, a task list, you know, keep me on task and then I'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's always good to to pass along information. Yeah. Well, yeah, good information, too. And, and, you know, people listening hear me all the time talk about these things and and the guys, and it's kind of nice having you guys to be able to come on and, and talk a little bit about, you know, your perspectives from these trips. Good memories, anyway. Yeah, that's for sure. Definitely that. Well, look at how long our friendship has gone. I mean, we. I mean, this is going on past what fifty years, forty-five years, something like that. Yeah, I know Scott. I've known each other. Are you trying to? Are you Scott? I've known each other for fifty years. Me or what? So trying to depress me or what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Scott. Trying to what? Hmm? Depressing. No, no depression. Yeah, our, our our group of friends is pretty pretty much intact. There were a couple of couple of uh, people that are gone, but you know, for the most part, you know, we we're still friends, and that's been a long time. Yeah, I think we're in pretty good shape too. Yeah, we're we're fortunate in that. Well, guys, listen, we'll wrap this up. Um, you know, great chat. We need to have you guys on the Q and A. That's where we just we sit around and batter on different questions. I've got uh, yeah, I would like that. And, and I'm working on a new project. I'm not going to say what it is, but I'll tell you guys privately what I'm doing. But um, okay, okay, okay. And Scott and Milo, I'm going to send you guys some yeah. audio pieces that are really cool. You you'll inter- you'll find them interesting. Okay, okay. Hey guys, Thank nice you. meeting y'all. It was great. Likewise, great to meet Absolutely. you too. Yep. Yep, nice to meet you. All right, guys. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Okay. In Bigfoot history. San Diego Union, March 9th, 1876, contains the following story. A wild man in the mountains. The following strange story is sent by a correspondent at Warner's Ranch in this county. We know the writer to be a perfectly reliable person and believe his statement, singular as it may seem, to be fully entitled to credence. Warner Ranch, March 5th. About 10 days ago, Mr. Turner Helm and myself were in the mountains about 10 miles east of Warner's Ranch on a prospecting tour. Looking for an extension of a quartz load 
which had been found by some party sometime before. When we were separated, about half a mile apart, the wind blowing very hard at times, Mr. Helm, who was walking along looking down at the ground, suddenly heard somebody whistle. Looking up, he saw something sitting on a large boulder, about 15 or 20 paces from him. He supposed it to be some kind of an animal, and immediately came down on it with his needle gun. The object instantly rose to its feet and proved to be a man. This man appeared to be covered all over with a coarse black hair, seemingly two or three inches long, like the hair of a bear. His beard and the hair on his head were long and thick. He was a man of about medium size and had rather fine features, not at all like those of an Indian, but more like an American or a Spaniard. They stood gazing at each other for a few moments when Mr. Helm spoke to the singular creature, first in English, then in Spanish, and then in Indian. But the man remained silent. He then advanced toward Mr. Helm, who, not knowing what his intentions might be, again came down on him with a gun to keep him at a distance. The man at once stopped, as though he knew there was danger. Mr. Helm called to me, but the wind was blowing so hard that I could not hear him. The wild man then turned and went over the hill and was soon out of sight. Before Mr. Helm could come and see me, he had made good his escape. We had frequently before seen this man's tracks in that part of the mountains, but had supposed them to be the tracks of an Indian. I did not see the strange inhabitant in the mountains myself, but Mr. Helm was known to be a man of unquestioned veracity, and I have no doubt that the entire truth of the statement. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everyone. We're lucky enough to have Forrest join us for this session. Um, Tom, do you like to uh, kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. Forrest, thanks again for, <clears throat> excuse me, for joining us. And you and I have had some really good discussions on this topic. I gotta tell you, you live in an area that's just, um, it's really interesting. <laughs> you know, you not only are you having sightings, but probably some evidence that it would make sense that your neighbors, you know, you're on a ranch and some of the other ranchers are also having some issues with these creatures. Um, you've, you sent me an article and I want to talk about that in a second, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that was going on on your property where these things were running around in a circle and this is in an area of really, I think you said it was like real thick um, cedar thicket or something like that. Tell me about it. Juniper, but we call it cedar down here. Um, well, strangely enough, I was having a fence put up or I'm having a fence put up around my uh, yard here. Uh, and because of the cats and stuff, we decided to go with a higher fence. So the gentleman was putting it in with pipe and, um, he had uh, gone back through with the, the backside with the dozer and um, had cleared some out. And he came and got me. He says, you need to come back here and look at this. He said, this is just about the strangest thing that I have ever in my life seen. And um, it was right behind my dog uh, kennel and pen. And my dog's got about a 16 by 20 foot uh, 
dog run and pen back there. And um, there was a perfect, I mean, perfect, you've got the pictures, perfect circle eight. And it's about three feet wide. And you can see the cedars. There's cedars in the middle of it. There's cedars all around it. In fact, as I told you, my friend's daughter had to literally duck walk to get into the cedar because I couldn't get down and crawl into it. And neither could she. And um, and so Sam had to crawl back there to get the pictures that I sent to you. And the um, the figure eight faces north and south. And out of the south end of it, you could clearly see a path that had been beat through my the cedar brush up in the front. And something had evidently been going that way and then crossed the fence and then, I guess, gone into the, the pasture uh, across the road. <clears throat> and um, then on the north side of the figure eight, there was a perfect tunnel. And it was probably uh, about four feet high and it was just a perfect tunnel going back to uh the tank and of course i explained to you that here in texas we call tank ponds tanks <laughs> um and it had been that it was beat just perfectly like something had been going through there back and forth and it was about oh i would say the hole itself was probably about four feet wide and about four to four and a half feet tall and I, I just, we all just stood there and kind of scratched our head. And, and uh, the young man that was still on the fence turned around and Cody says, it's just like something's been pacing around and around and around back here. And I mean, we, Sherry and I just looked at each other like, oh my gosh. And my poor dog had spent so much time for the last six months <laughs> barking. He would go to the back of his pen and just run up and down that fence line and bark and bark and bark back at the cedars. And I just always had assumed that it was probably deer running through there. Well, I don't know of any deer that run around in circles. Uh, and it was too thick for my horses to get in there. And they're not going to go around and around in circles anyway. And um, it was just, it was bizarre, absolutely bizarre. But I think Cody hit the nail on the head when he said, there's something that's been pacing around and around. And every time I'd go out there and stick my head out the front door and shine out with my spotlight, I never saw anything. I'd see my dog, he'd be looking out into those cedars, and I'd shine the spotlight out there, and I couldn't see anything. It was just so thick in there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, But that poor dog had just been barking and barking and barking. Well, that night, we moved him. And I've since got him uh, kenneled right behind the back of the house and that dog hardly has barked since he's been out there i mean it's just <laughs> I, i've never seen anything like it in my life and, and I here's think, the thing I think cody, you... cody recognized what was going on something had been back there just pacing and pacing and pacing and i don't know what it had in mind by doing that right exactly yeah the behavior we have no idea what its <laughs> intentions were but you've had a lot of this activity recently on your property but one of the i want to go back a little bit in time you had i i i apologize if i get this wrong but i thought it was your um son-in-law who drove up and he saw one of these things jump over a fence on all fours run over and then jump 
over the fence again. Can you tell us that story? And yeah. That was actually my grandson-in-law. They actually were living in this mobile home uh, for a while before they moved and bought a home in town. And he used to have to leave out of here before dark. And my entrance to my property is designed so that I can come in with my dually and my six horse trailer. And I'm about 52 feet long. So there's like a long uh, tube there and it's fenced on both sides, just a long driveway uh, with fence, fencing alongside. And then it comes up to the gate. And um, as I explained to you before, I used to have, before my home burned, the fire truck broke the armature to the, the gate. It used to be an automatic gate opener. And so now we have to get out and actually open, physically open the gate. Well, he got out of the truck, opened the gate, drove through, went back, closed the gate. And just as he literally had took a step to get into the truck, this black thing jumped over the fence to his left, ran across on four feet, and then stood up and cleared the other fence and then run off into the cedars. And he was, and he's a big boy. I mean, like I explained to you, he's about six, two, six, three, and probably weighs over, you know, close to two thirty. And he was terrified. He waited till he drove all the way up to the corner to call my granddaughter to tell her to lock, make sure the doors were locked and to be careful when she left and not to leave until daylight. And when I heard the story, he just kept, all he would tell me was, this was big, black, and hairy, big, black, and hairy. <laughs> That's all I ever got out of him was big, black, and hairy. So that was kind of the start of everything. And um, Did he give you an idea how big this thing was? Did you have a sense of that? Well, when he said it was on all fours, it came up to the hood of the, of the top of the hood of the truck. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty good size. When it went, when it hopped back over on the other side of the fence, was it still on it all fours? Or did it... No, it went over on when it first came over. Uh, it was my understanding it came over on four feet, and then went across in front of him on four feet. But it went up on two feet and went over the fence the other way. On two feet. Oh boy, I can imagine all the stuff going through. Anybody's head when you see something like that, you're going to be wondering what is this? It's not a bear. Uh, yeah, certainly. How long ago did this happen? That has been probably eight years ago. Okay, so a little while, but you know, not not that long ago. Um. Wow. And now this incident with the uh, figure eight, that's just, what, this month or this is real recent, right? Well, that just happened uh, this last week. And I mean, uh, that's when we found it. I mean, obviously, it's been going on for a while because uh, it's, I mean, the path itself is probably about three feet wide and it's just beat down. And there's literally cedars growing in the middle and you can see the, uh, see the uh, cedar dusting uh from the leaves and stuff when they lose their um um i don't know whether you call them leaves or conifers so um pine okay, needles or what have you yeah the needles and stuff are, are, are laying all over the the uh ground there and you can see the trees in the middle 
and it's just around and around and it's all it's uh, it's all the way beat down into the uh, sandy loam out there yeah wow so when was the um i, I guess because we talked a little bit about the one because you the one that was uh, shaking your air conditioner. Um, how long ago was that? And and I think you had mentioned that there's some things on our last episode when we talked to you that you had forgot to mention regarding oh, yeah, that. Yeah. On the stones and stuff. Yeah. The, um, the episode with the air conditioner was um, a year and a half ago. Um, the, just this past January, um, we don't get snow around here a whole lot. So uh, even though I lived in Alaska, uh, we Texans still get excited when we see snow. So um, I was out my back porch. It was snowing. And uh, this was in January. I don't remember the exact date, but it was January when we were having all the snow here. And I was taking pictures and I was sending them to my daughter and such. And <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm standing on the back porch and this rock comes flying over the top of the trees and it lands right next to me on the, in the snow on the back porch. And I was like, Hmm, that was weird. <laughs> and it was all, I was about a golf ball sized rock. And then, I mean, not 30 seconds later, here comes another one and it lands right next to me. And I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going inside. And I got the message, <laughs> and I went in the house, locked the door, and I called my daughter to tell her. And my and my son-in-law, he goes, well, tell her to call the sheriff, and he'll come out there and get those kids. And my daughter, being the smart aleck that she is, she says, honey, I don't think the sheriff's got handcuffs big enough to put on those kids. And then he, she promptly explained to him that it was probably – the hairy man that was out there throwing rocks at me and he was just like oh okay never mind right wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this was and this happened when now that was just this past january when we were getting all the snow you know okay. we had all that snow and horrible weather that we had yeah made national news right well yeah <laughs> We okay. get snow about once every two or three years around here. You know, um, and I and I know I asked you this before, but it just it really seems like I don't know if you've talked to your neighbors about this since then, but uh, you know, I don't think they're going to be you know exclusively on your property and not other people having problems as well. Well, you know, like you and I talked. I think it's kind of peculiar that all of a sudden I'm seeing Bigfoot, these big metal signs, you know, with the Bigfoot uh, um, on them, and people are putting them up on their property. And I don't think they're just doing doing it, you know, for giggles and grins. I think that, you know, that they're probably being seen around here. And, um, you know, I know that that I did have a son-in-law that told me a story about when he was a teenager that, uh, and I'm, I still hadn't had a chance to talk to him, but I think it was over in Lano that he was hunting 
and that he was in a um, tree stand and that he had one walk just a, you know, a few yards away from his tree stand. And evidently it never saw him because he was in camo and he said he absolutely didn't move a muscle. He said it scared him to death. So, I mean, I know they're, they're, uh, they've had sightings over in Lampasas at the lamp uh, down by the river in Lampasas, and that's a historical thing. Um, I want to say it was back in the 60s or 70s. Um, and just, um, oh gosh, it was in the, I'd have to look it up again, but they had one over in Smithwick which is on the other side of Marble Falls, uh, going out towards uh, Inks Lake um, and Lake Travis over there. And a guy was actually played in a band, and he was coming down 1341, um, and it crossed the road in uh, front of him and then stood behind a tree. And he said it was like trying to pull the tree down, like in front of him, and peering around, looking at him, and he said, well, the first thing he said was he thought it was a man in chaps, and he couldn't understand what in the world was somebody walking around in leather chaps out there, and I guess it was the fur that he saw moving that gave him the impression that it was chaps. And um, so, but that happened out by Smithwick. So there's historically, uh, I mean, it's, I think that people that have just decided that, uh, they're not afraid to say things anymore. And, but uh, I think I'm going to actually put something in the newspaper and see if anybody responds to tell me if they've actually had sightings and such around here. You know, it's encouraging though, to hear you say that people are sort of dropping their guard and feeling more comfortable uh, talking about this. And you, you know, some people in East Texas that you, we talked about, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Some of the because apparently that's historically a, a area of high activity. Is that right? Uh, East Texas and uh, San Houston State Park uh, has uh, a lot of sightings, and uh, a lot of the researchers, um, if you want to call them that, go down there and uh, and see them down there and hear them. And I've heard actually uh, that. Sometimes then down around Sam Houston State Park, it can sound like uh, <laughs> like the jungle with all the hoots and hollering and and uh, uh, carrying on that they do down there. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Sam Houston uh, National Forest or, or State Park, you said, or or yes, sir, it's a state okay. park. Okay. Oh, state mm-hmm. park. Okay. Um, how big is that roughly? I mean, what's oh gosh. You know, I don't know. I'd have to look, sir. Okay. But if it's like everything else in Texas, it's big, right? It's big, <laughs> of course. You know that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, interesting. you so, never been to Texas and seen the Statue of San Houston? I have not. I've been all over the country. Uh, I have not been to Texas, so I guess I'll have to remediate that at some point. Get down there. Yeah, we have a huge huge uh, statue of Sam Houston, and I couldn't even tell you how tall it is. It's several hundred feet tall. Wow. Sam Houston. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, well, that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of interesting about these things showing rocks at you just, you know, less than a year ago, not quite a year ago. 
Um, yeah, that was the first time I'd ever had that happen here. Yeah, and on your own property too. Well, and it makes sense because it actually came from the direction where the path led out of this figure eight to going into the front part of my property and where it goes across the highway there. And so that kind of made sense that uh, they've been using that um, area. I think they've been, well, obviously they've been coming through there for a long time. Well, exactly. You know, you've got that pathway and then it leads to the little pond or the tank. Um, and I just, you know, you, you can't help but wonder if that's just, they transit through there, they go, they get a drink of water. I'm sure it gets plenty hot in the summertime and, you know, they're like everything else. They need to get cooled down and, you know, get something to drink. So. Oh, yeah. And there's plenty of frogs and turtles and stuff in that thing, too. And for the most part, unless it's, unless we have just a terribly dry season, that tank does maintain water most of the time. Okay. And, and the one thing else that I was going to, uh, I needed to remind myself to tell you about was when PEC this summer came through here and cut that line. <laughs> um, I think they upset them. Um, PEC is Pertinalis Electric Co-op here, which is our electric company. And they came through here because they had to replace a lot of the, the lines and poles and such. And they actually needed to put some additional poles on my property. And so they needed permission to come through here and clear cedar and such. And um, I, at that point in time, there was so much cedar, I could not see the property off to the west of me at all. And they came through here and just dozed all that out. And, I mean, it really didn't bother me. I was glad to see the cedar go. Um, but evidently it bothered somebody else because it wasn't uh, two or three days after that. that uh, and I actually made mention to the, the PEC guys. I said, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you pissed off my hairy man. And they're like, what? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, you made my hairy man mad. And um, I walked over and showed them these cedar trees. And they were like, well, how in the heck did that happen? I said, well, you see, when you get Bigfoot mad, I said, they take and they twist these trees. And they had li literally had twisted these two trees and pulled them down across where they had just braided. So now they were laying across where these guys had just cleared. So <laughs> it was like they they were just all standing around scratching their head going, Harry, man, huh? Uh, okay. <laughs> really? Um, how, yeah. big, how, how big were these trees that they had oh, they twisted? And they were about uh, 15, 20 feet uh, tall. Okay. And I mean, they probably... Were, I mean, they weren't great well, big tall ones, but they were tall enough. Yeah, no, no, 15, 20 feet is plenty tall. And I'm diameter wise, I would say, I would, I'm guessing what? About four, six inches. Five inch, six and inches. They were about, okay. Yeah, you know, six to eight inches around. Okay. So you yeah, think about the breaking strength. Could have done. I mean, they were literally just twisted, just twisted and uh, turned around, and the bark and everything was just ripped. And laying across the, and they were still connected to the to the 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 tree itself. I mean, they but they were just turned and they were all facing out towards the the base of the tree is what I meant. And and then just twisted and then laid across the 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 path there. 
Yeah, well, you know, we have, uh, Will, we got a couple guys down there in Texas, and we also have a guy in Arizona who, who's described the exact same. He's, they both sent us pictures of the exact same um, behavior. And, you know, again, it just goes back to what did that? It wasn't a, it wasn't the wind. It's not oh, no. the uh, snow load. Yeah, something with a lot of strength to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's um, now you were going to when we talked the other day, you were going to measure. I didn't know if you had time yet or not, but you wanted to sort of calculate the height of the one that was standing in your window. And you're going to measure, yeah. I think, the eaves to the ground? Eaves to the ground, and it's uh, nine feet. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not good at math, but nine feet is very big <laughs> for, for one of these creatures. <laughs> it's a lot bigger than me. I'm only five six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and the building is actually up. <laughs> oh, God. I didn't even. <laughs> the building is actually up above the ground. It sits on uh, uh, on stone uh, pal uh, pilings. And uh, so it's actually above the ground. And which explains why when I looked at the window, all I was seeing was chest. So yeah, exactly. The head, yeah, the head reached the the eaves there. So That's, yeah, yeah, that gave me a new perspective on the whole thing too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's that's that would just be, uh, especially being that close, and and you've got that nice, wonderful glass between you and this creature to protect you, right? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I well, we're gonna, has there been any history of them actually breaking the glass and, and reaching in? Yes. Actually, um, you know, we have uh, our police friend, T.W., in New Mexico, and he was sent out on a call. Um, it was a few years back, but, and that's what happened. Um, there was an older Hispanic couple and one of the creatures smashed in the kitchen window and then when he the gentleman went out to f take a look and see what happened the creature was there and took a swipe at him oh my goodness so it was actually possibly done as an enticement to get him outside or get somebody outside most likely yeah well i mean that thought crossed crossed my mind when all this took place that that might uh, you know, this whole thing with rat pulling and, you know, screwing the air conditioner around. Um, in fact, I ended up having the next day having to have somebody come and push the air conditioner back in in its proper place that he had pulled it uh, out that that much. And it was kind of sitting askance in the window. Um, and that thought crossed my mind that that was a uh, the action was to entice me to come outside. And I thought, no, nope, I'm not going there. 
Yeah, I think they do that a lot, especially, you know, you always hear people talking about them slapping the side of a building and things like that. And and that's kind of what's going on. They're trying to uh, get people to come out. They're trying to get a head count, things like that. You know, it's it's the it's the action to get people to do something to come out. Well, and I'm going to actually, uh, I'm going to mention something briefly here to you that I actually talked to my daughter about this afternoon. And I uh, told her to have my granddaughter give me a call. And um, she works very, my granddaughter works very peculiar hours. So I have not had a chance to uh, talk with her. But when she was a teenager, and my other granddaughter was a teenager, because at one point in time, this mobile home, I, I actually purchased it and, and uh, got it uh, originally for my, my da- oldest daughter. And she lived here for a while. And um, my two granddaughters had the back bedroom, and that bedroom faces where all this activity was going on behind the dog pen. And those kids, they dearly loved their grandfather, who passed away in 2008, and that was my husband. And um, they used to tell me about and I had always kind of you know laughed it off (laughs) my daughter and I were were thinking you know maybe this has something to do with (laughs) the Bigfoot because the kids used to the two girls used to tell me about they would hear tappings on the wall and scratching on the wall and they kept saying oh it's just Papa KC he's letting us know that he's still here and I was always like, okay, yeah, these two girls have got a really big imagination. I don't think their Papa KC is still coming and would be tapping and scratching on the, the wall of the trailer on the outside. And you know what? I'm just wondering, and I, like I say, I still have got to talk to her, and I want to get a clear picture of what was going on. But I think those two teenage girls, there was something else going on with the tapping and the scratching on the wall, and it it wasn't Papa KC doing it. I, I have a bit of concern because we interviewed a lady in Missouri not too long ago, Carol, and she said she's had a lot of trouble with the creatures there, and they actually, she knew that they could tell with her trailer <laughs> by coming by and sniffing it where she was in it. I think I remember hearing that episode. Yeah, that's a little disconcerting, I think. Yeah. Well, of course, the two girls are grown up now and have their own children. And uh, one, the uh, the one lives inside uh, in town in Burnett here, and the other one lives in uh, Carthage. So they're well away from here. But that just leaves me. But I know that that just occurred to me. And and my daughter and I were just talking this afternoon, and I said, you know, I just wonder if there was something else going on here long before. And we just didn't realize it. And I think it's probably been an ongoing thing. And nobody put two and two together. Yeah, very likely. And plus the fact that it was two teenage girls. Right. That seems to be an attraction for them. Yeah, it could very well be. I mean, I've, I've investigated situations where the teenage girls uh, seem to kind of draw them in. And, and, you know, 
Tom and I had discussed something. Tom, remember about I was telling you about um, I was relying on my history about macaques and uh, their proclivity for kidnapping babies and uh, amongst themselves. And yeah, why don't you go into that a little bit? Well, macaques have a habit, and I, I know a lot of monkeys do this. And it usually has to do with the, the rank, you know, the, the hi- there's a hierarchy within the, the monkeys, uh, just like there is in people, you know. And they live in family groups, and you have the, the alpha females, alpha males, and then you have your, uh, the, it's kind of graduated down to the lower class females. And the alpha females oftentimes will take, and kidnap the lower-ranking females' babies. And, I mean, they do some awful things to them. I mean, they drag these poor babies around. They bounce them off rocks. They bounce them, drag them on the ground. Uh, I mean, they have they have one that um, they actually call her the drag queen because she literally drags these babies sometimes to their death. And um, I think it is in some uh uh, fashion their way of eliminating competition within the the rankings of the uh, the groups and uh, and of course the lower class ones are going to be picked on. You're not going to have a lower class female coming up and snatching a uh, a high ranking female's babies. They're not. Gonna, that's just not going to happen. So it's always lower class that get picked on. And I just suddenly sometimes wonder that there these children that disappear mysteriously and are never to be seen or heard of again and then there's some that come back with these mysterious stories talking about being taken care of by a bear and i can see a child relating that more to a bear than they could a gorilla because um you know some children aren't uh familiar with gorillas um but i just i just wondered about that if they're uh that children that disappear, that possibly that Bigfoot would be snatching them, um, whether it be a young female that actually is wanting a baby. And sometimes in the macaques, they do that. Females that are wanting babies and thinking that it will actually raise them in the rank if they have a baby attached to them. Because these babies just attach to their fur and, they, and they're just like, uh, it's like Velcro, Velcro monkeys. And um, literally, they have to peel them off of them to, to get them off. And I don't know. It was just, uh, I was thinking, maybe there's something to the fact that maybe a uh, non-lactating female that there are one that's not bred or doesn't have babies might just uh, be snatching uh, human infants to uh, satisfy that uh, motherly urge. You know, and I want to mention real quick that, um, Forrest, your your professional background, your part of your educational background is you're you're an anthropologist, and it's interesting that you're you're kind of doing a comparative, uh, almost like a comparative anthropological uh, or comparison, I should say, between these between the behavior of macaques and other apes monkeys rather and bigfoot you know is there something is there some sort of a um you know a connection there well i mean 
I think everybody's pretty much satisfied with the, as I told you, you know, Bigfoot has been discovered. The problem is that science won't verify Bigfoot. Um, Sasquatch, whatever they want to end up calling them, but uh, they're primates. And whether people want to admit it or not, humans and all primates down from your uh, great apes like gorillas, <clears throat> chimpanzees, orangutans, all the way down to your monkeys order and even some of your prosimian orders, we all basically act the same. And we pretty much do things the same. I mean, you can you can look at macaques and see the expressions. I mean, macaques, a mother macaque will sit and look with love at her baby. That baby will look up and kiss its mama. I mean, you can see things that humans do in all monkeys, chimps, apes. I mean, all of them, all of them do it. And I don't think that Bigfoot is probably too different. And... What classifies a creature as a primate and what, what differentiates us from, you know, other primates? What differentiates us from other primates? Yeah. What, what, what is the class? Yeah, How do you the classify? Well, we're the naked ape. <laughs> okay. Well, I think what you're getting at, Tom, is we get listeners who, you know, cause I'll refer to the creatures of Sasquatch as primates. And, um, you know, people say, well, we're not primates or, or apes aren't primates or the cre these creatures aren't primates. And I think a lot of people just don't understand. So uh, a good class, a good clarification of primates, you know, and what makes a primate. Well, we are of the, hum, uh, the family Hominidae. And... Um, our tribe is the homonym. We are the same. We are in the same classification as gorillas and chimpanzees. They used to put orangutans in that group too. Uh, when I was going to school, they did. Now they don't. They actually give them a, a separate classification. <clears throat> um, we are literally. Um, we're the literally the the naked ape, and um, we have five fingers. We have fingernails, where most of your your animals have claws. Some of your tarsiers and your prosimians and your lower the lowest order of primates, the prosimians and such do have they have digits, but they do also have claws on their fingers. That their um, first and second digits have claws. And, um, but all your, <clears throat> excuse me, all your primates all the way down to your monkeys have, uh, uh, we have fingernails. Uh, humans have the opposable tongue, a thumb, but we don't have an opposable toe. Like your, all, all the other lower, uh, even your chimps and gorillas have an opposable big toe and they have their Feet and hands are structured so we have hands. We don't have paws. Um, they are structured so that they can climb. Ours are not. We don't climb. And most of your Bigfoot uh, 
tracks have all had where the big toe is in line with the rest of the 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 toes and um so they have feet like ours except they have the metatarsal break in there um which your primates have we don't so we can't go shinny up a tree and grasp it with our foot our foot is pretty much straight and um our of course our structure bone structure is different um your um there's a thing re- referred to in anthropology as the humeral femoral index and uh, i don't know you might be familiar with this william where the it's the length of the humerus remember if i can get this right now the length of the humerus divided by the length of the femur and then you multiply that by 100 and this is where I find it rather unusual with uh, comparing um, Bigfoot and the rest of the primate family because you hear a lot of them, people say that when they saw them that the, the arms hung down to their knees. Well, this index, actually the higher the index is, the more arboreal the animal is. Now, our legs are actually longer than our arms with all other primates that's not true the arms are longer than the legs and so some of your animal uh, primates like your gorillas and your chimps are what they consider to be partially arboreal uh whereas your other monkeys are strictly arboreal Uh, your macaques and such they're pretty much even on their length of leg and length of arm and they spend a lot of time on the ground and mostly that will indicate that these animals are terrestrial rather than arboreal and uh, so the closer your ratio gets to a hundred is more uh, how arboreal the animal will be like a chimp has a ratio between 97 and 98 whereas uh, with a human it's only 71 to 70 72. You know, that's interesting because it would also account for them being seen moving in all fours uh, as, you know, fairly frequently. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I used to get so frustrated in watching uh, Not Finding Bigfoot um, that uh, you would see the guys would be out there, you know, scanning the, the trees. And I was like, look up in the trees, look up in the trees. <laughs> They might be up in the trees because obviously. <laughs> well, those obviously guys don't know if a whole lot. They got a longer arm. They have some ability to climb the trees. <laughs> yeah, well, th- those guys don't know a whole lot. We'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh, you know, I-, I love Bobo though. I, I, <laughs> I do. I love Bobo. I've, I've got a friend that we've had on a few times, John, who's a forensic anthropologist, and. He reached out to me a number of years ago when he was here in the Bay Area teaching college and, and working the court systems. And he said, you know, I really like your approach. He says, I, I use I use the show Finding Bigfoot for my students as an example of bad science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, no people don't usually take a drum and bugle corps out to <laughs> look, for, look for animals. I mean... <laughs> Uh, you look at Jane Goodall, 
and Diane Fossey, um, they went out there and sat with these animals for hours and hours and hours before these animals ever even came up and, you know, had any trust in them. And Jane Goodall can tell you some stories about the fact that she nearly met her death out there a couple of times when they attacked her. And there was one male that just did not like her at all. And she was, you know, she was, uh, he attacked her several times and, uh, I'm sure had every intention of killing her. Yeah. I, I think, you know, any, anything outside the group, um, and that, which kind of brings me to another point, you know, and we've talked about this, uh, people say, well, you know, things, you know, we put things out there to take pictures, game cameras, and et cetera. I remember reading some articles about, um, you know, particularly primates will go out of their way. If something is in their area and doesn't belong there, you know, they're, they're really afraid of that kind of stuff, especially human made objects. And they'll go out of their way to avoid, you know, human made objects. Yeah. Chimpanzees will, chimpanzees will do that. They're not, you can't readily pick them up on game cameras. Yeah, researchers have said that, that they won't be, they can't be readily picked up on game cameras. I think that's something, you know, people get confused, but, you know, a little bit of reading, you know, they'd figure it out quick that, hey, you know, these kind of things don't work because they aren't, they're not stupid animals. You know, they're, they're watching and they're intimately familiar with what's in their area. Well, you know, Tom asked me he, what I thought Bigfoot was. And <clears throat> I had to honestly answer him. What did I say, Tom? I don't know. Right. Well, that, and that's a good, you know, I think that's a good answer. Um, I mean, Will and I have talked about, uh, I mean, they're obviously a hominid. They're, they're, uh, they're very, very, very intelligent. I think far more intelligent than any of the apes out there. Uh, but, Will, we've talked about the type four, which is different than the other ones very very different yeah that may not even be a bigfoot that might be something entire i mean it could be a relic um you know that's still alive out there for all we know now is that the one that um has the a pronounced nasal prognathism oh no no that's the type three um the fours the fours actually it's interesting now the fours um You know, they're that's more like what what you'd get with the the Minnesota Iceman, you know, when, that Frank Hansen oh. shot, uh, and they kind of oh. and they're kind of in that region of North America, that northeastern region, uh, a little bit on the smaller side than you know what we're, we're used to when we talk about Bigfoot. But um, one of the features that's interesting is they actually can go bald where the other types don't, you know, like humans. Mm-hmm. So there's some features about them that are a little bit different than the others. So I kind of suspect they're not in the same category. Well, don't they also so they're have actually more human? They're more human in their appearance. Well, you know, people that see them say they kind of that what reminds them are of um, you know, depictions of cavemen. Mm-hmm. You know, more along that line. So, like I say, I, I kind of suspect they're, and I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of you know, weighing the evidence as it comes in, but that's my guess anyway. Well, you know, they had reports in Russia of, um, and I'm sure you probably know that story, where um, 
and I think this was uh, before, during, or somewhere around uh, World War One when the Reds took over uh, Russia, that they had actually cornered something, and they thought it was rebels in a cave, and what they ended up shooting was a caveman yeah. that looked like a Neanderthal. Yeah, they actually and, brought it into the POW camp, and it wouldn't eat, and they ended up shooting it. Now, um, I don't know. I, I, I just hold out hope that maybe somewhere somewhere in this world that there might be um, Neanderthal holdouts. We don't know. I mean, that's the thing. There could very well be, and we simply don't know. Well, I know. They're, you know, they're they, there. They, they, I, I've worked with them before. I had oh, a boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a boss that was definitely Neanderthal. <laughs> well, you know, they get a bad rap, but, you know, you have to recognize the fact that they've act- they actually existed on the Earth for a longer period of time than Homo sapiens sapiens. <laughs> that would be us. Yeah, we're kind of the most, we're the most recent advent, aren't we? Yeah, we're the new kids on the block. We're the new kids. <laughs> and not necessarily the best developed. I, I remember. Good kids. I remember my my anthropology professors talking about the fact that we're really not that well designed for bipedal walking. It's the reason we have so many back and knee problems and things like that. Um, And when we look at the way the Sasquatch walks, um, they're much better at bipedal walking than we are mechanically. Oh, yeah. They have have a compliant gait. We do not. And... uh... Boy, do I know about back problems. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm there with you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told Tom about all the surgeries that I'm looking forward to. So. Well, I shouldn't say um, I don't have so many back problems. It's it's knee problems. Huh? Now, see, I don't have knee problems, but I have back problems. They're gonna. I'm gonna be the bionic woman by the time they get through with me. <laughs> I will set off every alarm there is to be set. I'm setting off. <laughs> well, the other thing I was going to run past you, uh, I did think about this the other day was, um, uh, and I can't remember if we even talked about this before. Um, Capitum lucidum, you know, the uh, what makes our eyes reflective. Yeah. And everybody always says that you can see Bigfoot eyes that they reflect light. Yeah, Um, I've actually seen it myself. Well, you know that primates as primates don't have that. I wonder. I do wonder if... But prosimians do. Our lowest order of primates do. I wonder if... if Well, they must be... I mean, I'm pretty sure they predate us you know, by a significant amount. And I'm wondering if that wasn't some kind of a special development, um, you know, over, over, you know, millennia, you know, where they actually have that. Well, it would have to be, it would have to be something they retained because they do, uh, so much. I mean, it seems that they do most of their movement and hunting at night. Yeah, typically, so, typically it's plus or minus an hour of sunset, and and the same for sunrise. Those frames, but you know, when you look at the game, how the game animals move, particularly deer, uh, they're well, they're the moving, thing, yeah, you know, to and from their bedding areas at that those times. So, it would make sense. 
Let me jump in real quick with a question for both of you. What is the advantage? Uh, what benefit do do the animals who have that eye shine? What what benefit does it serve them? Well, it gives them better night vision. Okay, and that's kind of where I was going with this. So that would now see we gave up night vision. Um, and I say gave up, I don't know that we ever had it, but I'm just saying that we don't have night vision, uh, basically, the, uh, so that we can detect more, uh, a more variety of colors. We as uh, <clears throat> humans can detect uh, a variety, more, more, more colors than uh, other primates can. Oh. Yeah, there's, but you know what it works, I noticed in, in the military, because my job was reconnaissance and, and working primarily at night, um, and it's something I learned later in college when I was majoring in psychology and taking neurobiology courses uh, about about the uh, the uh, rods in our eyes on the sides, you know, and that peripheral vision to pick up movement. And and I really noticed that during my service time because uh, you know you couldn't see that well in the dark. Of course, we were tested for our night vision, and and you know you kind of had to have a certain amount of it. Uh, but the movement was the big thing and, and you kind of had to get used to kind of watching, you know, or paying attention to your peripheral vision. Yeah. Well, we have more cone cells in our eyes than rods. Right. And evidently, yeah, the, uh, rods are what provide the, uh, the more rods there are to, and, and I guess the owl of all <clears throat> animals and birds have more rods in their eyes than any animal which i would think the sasquatch probably so has <laughs> i would think the sasquatch probably has more too well i i would i would agree with you i wouldn't be wandering around in the dark without night vision if i didn't uh, have my own night vision <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so i don't think the military is providing them with night vision <laughs> No, and I, 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 I've told the story that, uh, um, in fact, the previous segment with my, my old buddies, I was mentioning with Milo, because Milo and I were stationed at Fort Lewis at the same time in 1980, and that was about the time they first came out with, because before that we had the old Vietnam starlight scopes, and, and they weren't very good, especially if it rained, you couldn't see anything. Um, mm -hmm. So they come out with a, a night vision goggle, and, and it was a, a nomenclature, it was an ANPVS-5, and they were much better than the Starlight. They weren't great yet, not like the the later generations. But they gave me they gave me one to try out, and uh, I took my squad out to the field, and I got a radio call from my boss saying that there was no nobody out in that part of the base, so <clears throat> we could just do whatever we wanted to. And they were coming to pick us up in the morning with the helicopters, and um, so I told the guys, I said, okay, we're going to practice ambushing them. We'll crash out. So I told the team leaders to take your men, deploy them. And I took my radio man, this little P, young PFC, I said, come on, let's go. And I, I picked a spot on the tree line between the two fire teams, you know, for command and control purposes. And, and you know, I'm, he's trudging along behind me, and I got these vision goggles, and I walked into this tree line. It was super dark in there. And there was something, it was almost like the side, it, imagine a sheet of plywood in front of you, taking this move, you know, a, a couple of feet from my right to my left, and I can tell you the hair went up in the back of my neck and I about crapped myself trying to get out of there. And I'm telling this poor kid, Doug goes, out, 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 out. 
<laughs> and and I, I didn't say anything. I told the guys, I hollered at them, I said, hey, you know, scrub what we're doing. Let's just go ahead and, uh, you know, we'll just crash out for the night. And all we did was just, you know, sit back to back. And I had a 15-man squad, so there were plenty of us there. And we're sitting out in this open area next to the road. And nobody said anything. And pretty soon one of the guys says, hey, Sarge, I thought there wasn't supposed to be anybody out here. I can hear somebody walking around us. And I said, yeah, there's there's nobody out here. And uh, a couple of other guys pipe up and they said, yeah, there's somebody walking around the walking around our uh, group here. And then one of the guys says, hey, Sarge, you're from this area. What do you know about Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> so I told him what I saw, you know, as a teenager. And uh, and, and I've mentioned before, I said, I'll, I'll bet all those guys would swear up and down today that that's what was walking around us that night. And I think I yeah. must have walked into one, you know, and it was just this huge shape, you know, dark shape that took this uh, this one step to its right. And uh, it was not the place to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that is a very primate um, thing to do is just sit there, especially with gorillas and chimpanzees. I mean, they can sit there quietly in the foliage and you can walk right past them and never see them. And um, I think that's a, a trait that it seems to, uh, that Bigfoot seems to have acquired because they can just sit there and just, uh, you know, we hear watch that. you. And in fact, yeah, we hear yeah. that very often. In fact, I remember the lady that was actually researching the Billy Apes, and uh, y'all know what the Billy Apes are. Um, <clears throat> and um, she had, I mean, the natives there, of course, you know, my gosh, why would the natives, the poor ignorant natives know anything? Um, you know, they'd been telling um, people for years <laughs> that there was another chimpanzee-like animal out there and that like to walk bipedally sometimes, but they were a different color than uh, uh, the black chimpanzees, and that these tended to be a gray color, and that they were much bigger. And um, lo and behold, guess what? You know, along comes, they finally now recognize that there is a a chimpanzee called the Billy Ape. And um, um, the woman that was... Uh, researching these animals said that, uh, of course, they, they're quite impressive. Uh, they, when they stand up, they're well over six foot. I mean, they, they run in the range of six, three, six, four, and about 300 pounds. Um, sound familiar? Um, That's pretty big. I didn't realize they were that large. Yeah, they're, they're, they're large. They're much larger than, uh, the standard, uh, chimpanzee. And I don't even know if they have a taxonomy for them. I'm sure they're in the pan group, but um, they that these things actually would walk up so quietly on her that she actually was terrified at one point in time when they had that this big male had just walked up on her and was standing there staring at her, and she turned around and there it was, and uh, she'd never heard it approach her. You know, I think and well, we've never heard they that. Have a, What's that? We've never heard that sort of behavior with Bigfoot, though, have we? <laughs> oh no, never, never. Uh-uh. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> but um, the one thing that I had never heard, and you may have, I don't know, I've never heard of Bigfoot being sighted in. Oh, did we lose her? I hope not. 
for us? Are you still there? Oh, we did lose your hold on that. Yeah, I think the battery might have died. Okay. Let's get her back because I want to see what she's yeah, going to say. Yeah, I was kind of curious too. I'm kind of sitting here on the edge of my seat. Sometimes it happens, folks, though, that we'll we'll lose somebody on their phone. And oh, we lost we lost you a minute there. Yeah, I have no idea what happened. <laughs> I guess I guess uh, um, my phone decided that it was time to hang up. <laughs> well, you were just getting to a really good part. And I don't know what it was, but we're waiting to hear it. Well, I ask if, uh, what part did you not hear? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where my phone disconnected at. Uh, <clears throat> I had asked you if you had ever heard of uh, any sightings of Bigfoot in uh, Africa. You know, there was something, Tom and I were talking about that just a, a few weeks ago, and... I did find a reference, and now I can't remember what they called it. Oh, I remember that, yeah. And I, I want to yeah, say it was in the name. Congo area, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I'll have to I'll have to look it up and send it to you because I, I did find a reference. Oh, I think there's so many things in the Congo that uh, we are not even to this day aware of. Yeah, there was actually two two countries in West Africa uh, that had reports of them, and it sounds very similar to what we have here. Hmm. Well, I think they've probably been around a long time, and uh, I think they're a very know, old native, species. Yes, I think, and your Native Americans here say that uh, they were here when um, their forefathers arrived. Oh, I've got friends, so, like, on, like for example, in the Klamath Reservation, I have friends there that told me point blank, they said, oh, yeah, these things are here when our, our people came here. And then we chased them out of the hunting areas. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think they're human, but I think they're about as close as being human as could possibly be without being human. Yeah, I agree. I, I think... You know, and, and you see them, you know, where anthropologists are always finding that there were, you know, more and more hominids that existed at the same time. I think, what's the number? It's seven, I think, now. Um, could be 20. You know, who knows? And these guys are probably one of those that they haven't discovered. <clears throat> well, somebody told me once upon a time that... Um, and I, I guess you're going to think this is kind of a, a stupid premise on my part, but it's the only one I can come up with, you know, uh, that, oh, they're the missing link. And I said, well, I don't think so. Um, and I base it on the fact that we have so few fossils mm -hmm. of, of ancient man and all of our ancestors that and we're discovering more stuff all the time and my gosh um i mean they have discovered so much since i went to school and i just scratch my head and go my god you know the scarcity the scarcity of <laughs> the transitional fossil record itself um it's just it's too incomplete to say that there is such a thing as a missing link out there. There's just too many missing links right now. Right. And, you know, our, our my friend John that I mentioned, the forensic anthropologist, he said, 
you know, where and we talked about this in one of the shows. Um, instead of there, you know, like a lot of people think, well, and they're told that there, well, there's this tree, you know, and one thing is related to the next and so on. He said, that's not accurate. He said, it's more like bushes instead of a single tree. Exactly. And he's right. Yeah. And you're right too. I mean, because yeah. we, we don't know. Uh, and and he he came up with something that I thought too that these guys, you know, one of the uh, the Australopithecines, the robustus one, could very well be the ancestor of these creatures. It's it's more. He said it fits more into that category than say a prehuman would. Yeah, and and uh, I was reading here not too long ago that. Uh, and this is something that nobody ever talked about when I was going to school, that they think Dryopithecus was actually a bipedal ape. Yeah, right, right. So bipedalism has actually existed long in our time. fossil record for a long time. Long time. And, uh, but it's not necessarily to, uh, to say that one or the other became human or just became, you know, <laughs> well, this is just a refined form of Dryopithecus is all it is, you know. Right. Or... Uh, uh, Gigantopithecus. Oh, yeah. Black yeah. eye, you know? So it just could be a refined form of all of the above. Exactly. Well, listen, we're just about out of time. Um, you know, I should ha- we should have you on with John. Yeah, I think it'd be a great discussion. Well, I'd enjoy it. All righty. Well, listen, we will stop this segment here, uh, and we'll... We'll discuss setting that up. So everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, Horn Lake, Vancouver Island, December 1904. The Victoria Daily Colonist, December 4, 1904, carried a news story concerning a wild man, part of which ran as follows. A.R. Crump, J. Kincaid, T. Hutchins, and W. Buss also reminded settlers of Qualicum, are the new witnesses, and there's not the slightest deviation or variation in detail in the stories they tell with an earnestness which defies ridicule. They were hunting out in the vicinity of Horn Lake, which lies midway between Great Central Lake and Comox Lake, in an uninhabited and little explored section of the interior of Vancouver Island, when they came upon the uncouth being whom they describe as a living, breathing, and intensely interesting modern Mowgli. The wild man was apparently young, with long matted hair and a beard, and covered with a profusion of hair all over his body. He ran like a deer through the seemingly impenetrable tangle of undergrowth, and pursuit was utterly impossible. This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C.V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. Moneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, 
there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct. But the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs. They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens... I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick growth of black woolly hair. In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels, Well-nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly, he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently, there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. 
It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse, and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning, the Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha, area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch, I ought to explain that for the past fifteen years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some sixty-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave-dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the Red Men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country, they were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand-to-hand -hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct.' 
The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe, that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The expedition that failed. In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch, detecting the approach of so many strangers, would immediately go into a hiding. The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. 
Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening, but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it and began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch, but we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but... His eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears, and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain, where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark, and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. 
Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later something shot out of that hole. I fired and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it. Then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy, about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward, he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared, and instinctively I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself, the wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect she growled, You have hurt my friend! I explained in the same language, I am part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and was very sorry for the accident. And anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply but, picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence, and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not, that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September while with the hop pickers there. It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person, and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. 
His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran. I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts On May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as, in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. The white speaker is wrong. To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. 
in the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that churned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes. A giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness, and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that through the glasses he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until a few minutes later the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, 
where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday, about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village, and saying that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long. Now very old, Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that, in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly, at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out, and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying. Then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. 
A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave. Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guessed that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them, telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain, when we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home, he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article, the few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior 
and like the Indians, I also believe. Copyright J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation. Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940. Volume 84, number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. The Spokane Indians, 1975. Indians had a Sasquatch, too. Those who think the stories about a huge, hairy mystery giant called a Sasquatch are of a recent origin should talk with the Wenatchee Valley College historian, John Brown. Brown has found evidence that the search for such a legendary creature was underway in the Northwest by the time the earliest white men arrived in the region. While researching material for a book he co-authored with Dr. Robert Ruby, The Spokane Indians, Children of the Sun, he came across a passage that must relate to what is now called a Sasquatch. The reference was in a letter written by the Reverend Elkanah Walker from Fort Colville in 1840. With his wife, Mary, Elkanah Walker was a missionary to the Spokanes. In a letter to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, he wrote, I suppose you will beat with me if I trouble you with a little of their, the Spokane Indians, superstition, which has recently come to my knowledge. They believe in the existence of a race of giants, which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. This mountain is covered with perpetual snow. They inhabit its top. They may be classed with Goldsmith's nocturnal class as they cannot see in the daytime. They hunt and do all their work in the night. They are men-stealers. They come to the people's lodges in the night when the people are asleep and put them under their skins and take them to their place of abode without their even waking. When they awake in the morning, they are wholly lost, not knowing in what direction their home is. The account the Indians give of these giants will in some measure correspond with the Bible account of such a race of beings. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams upon their back at once. They frequently come in the night, steal their salmon from the nets, and eat them raw. If the people are away, they always know when they are coming very near by their strong smell, which is most intolerable. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles. Then the stones will begin to hit the houses. The people are troubled with their nocturnal visits. Brown says he has known about many Spokane Indian legends about monsters, but they have been of the Paul Bunyan type that carves out valleys, etc., the ogre referred to in the letter is not really a monster, just a little bigger than man, and he had no idea what mountain to the west is referred to, the one that always is snow-topped. Perhaps it was Mount Rainier. The Spokanes also believed in a race of little people, Brown says. Even if the stories about the little people and the giants aren't true, the Indians believed they were, he says. Many people today believe just as fervently in the existence of a hairy, man-like object that sometimes is glimpsed, but never really seen. Plaster casts of prints supposedly from the feet of such a creature have been exhibited. One Sasquatch hunter has what he believes to be a picture of the man-animal. 
This area's involvement with the legend goes back some 25 or 30 years to the wild man of Lycanwaster, supposedly seen on that mountain by fishermen. Myth or fact, no one knows. But at any rate, John Brown's research indicates that reports of such a Bigfoot are nothing new. September 22, 1975, Wenatchee, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open.